teaching. That word in Greek is didasko. Hold on to that thought. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 2.42. In Acts 2.42 it says, And they, that is the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Didasco. Some of your translations may say the apostles' doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine, doctrine that you have received. That word doctrine is didaskalia, didaskalia. So we see that these words have a common root. 1 Timothy 6, 3. We're starting in 2b. Teach and urge these things. Notice teach, didasko. Teach and urge these things. And if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Finally, in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, given the qualifications of an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 2.1 But as for you, teach with accords with sound doctrine, didascalia. All right, I've given you a few Bible verses here in sort of piecing the puzzle together. Um, of what we're going to begin in our Bible study in systematic theology. Does anybody have a copy of the the book by Wayne Grudem handy? Anyone? Okay. If you do not have a copy of the book, that's fine. I left mine at home. I was in a scattered rush this morning. Uh, No no bother, though. The The book, which is called Entitled Bible Doctrine, is the condensed version of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and the two really are synonymous when we talk about systematic theology we are talking about bible doctrine or bible teachings and so as we embark on this study what this really is is a collection of the most important and basic teachings of christianity We have two words here. Let's start with this. What does the word theology mean? The study of God. Very good. Okay, right? The word theo is not short for Theodore. It's Latin for God. Theo. Ology It's the study or the science of. And so we can call it the study or the science of God. That really all of life is theology, isn't it? Whether you're looking at natural revelation or special revelation, everything is a study of God. And for the person who's a believer, everything in life is a lesson in theology. Theology is life. If you're a Christian, your whole life is wrapped around the study of God. 
We read the Bible, what? To study and learn more of who God is. To understand his mind and his heart, his purposes and his will. You, theology is not just some fancy word to describe an elite uh, group of academic scholars who uh, spend their days researching uh, doctrine. No. Every Christian is a theologian. Every Christian is a theologian. Every Christian is a scholar because every Christian makes it their duty and delight to study God. Now, theology has a broad spectrum of areas in which it is approached and understood. For one thing, there is a difference between theology and theology proper. Can anyone tell me the difference between theology and theology proper? Go ahead, Tom. Very good. You're, you're, you're pretty much on target there. When we talk about theology, it's a comprehensive world study or discipline that covers all of God's purpose, plan, and redemption Basically, all that God has revealed about himself through the Bible. When we talk about theology proper, it is a study specifically on the person of God. So theology proper falls under the greater category of theology and is part of systematic theology. Let's get to this word. What does systematic mean? Anybody want to take a crack at that? What does systematic mean? A system, very good. <laughs> very good, right? It's not too much. See, so we're talking about a system. All right, what, is, what do systems do? What do systems do? When you put a system in place in an organization, what does it do? Has a function. Kind of gave a little hint there in my, my wording. It organizes. A system organizes, Right? We have a system in place. When the deacons go to the back, they count the money, they have a system, they write down a law of who gives what, and then they take a picture of the deposit. There's a very intricate system designed to how the money is uh, uh, governed in the church. But I don't have no part of that. But we have men that are entrusted to do so. There is a system in place. When we talk about systematic theology, we're talking about a way of understanding and breaking down theology in an organized fashion. The systematic theology um, can be described as this. It answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today? It is systematic in that it's a breakdown of topics as to what the Bible teaches these topics are designated as doctrines. <clears throat> Again, didasco, didascalia. This all falls under the same category and ultimately fulfills the Great Commission. It concentrates on a collection of su and summary of all Bible verses on a particular doctrine and then organizes them in a systematic way. The organization is purposeful too. When we talk about systematic theology, there is, there, it's not just random, it is not disorganized, but it is organized in a very orderly fashion. So when we talk about systematic theology, I like you to think of a, a pyramid, right? Think of all the doctrines as a pyramid. In order to get to this point, we have to start at the foundation and build our way up. So what would you presume would be the foundational... Tom, you're answering too much. Uh, go ahead, Marcia. No. What would be the foundational... Not Tom. Tom, I, I know you know. Tom is just... Go ahead. No. No. Well, well, how are you going to know about... Well, first of all, all right, let me... Let me stop. Uh, I don't want to just be... Go ahead. Okay. No. Huh? No. Amen. Thank you. Amen. 
How will you know who God is without that? How will you know what the gospel is without that? How will you know what faith is without that? We're not just coming up with descriptions and opinions about these doctrines. This is not about a group of people coming together. What do you think faith is? Or what do you think God is? Or who do you think? What do you think the gospel means? No. We have to begin ultimately with the source and foundation of our understanding. That's the Bible. So when I'm done to this week, next week, Eric is going to teach. And he's going to bring this foundational study, the authority of God's word. That's the first step in the building block. You don't have that, you cannot build on. Everything else is just traditions of men. The opinions of men, speculations of men. This is where we build from. It's the foundation of the Christian faith. If you do not believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God, if you do not believe it's authoritative, then you will not believe anything else that the Bible teaches. You will not. This is useless to you. Systematic theology depends on the Bible being the foundation and basis of everything we believe. This is why sometimes I know James White debates different people. So when James White sits down with an Islamic imam or he sits down with a Roman Catholic theologian or scholar, I always find it difficult to sit through and listen to because you're dealing with two different reference points of authority. You're debating a Catholic on whether Mary is the co-mediatrix when the Catholic is depending on the Bible plus the tradition of the Roman church, you're debating whether Muhammad was a prophet or not. You're debating a man whose foundation, his, his reference point is the Quran. How could you have a meeting of the minds? You have to debate this first. Unless you could agree that the Bible is the final arbiter of truth, then nothing else matters. So systematic theology is essentially contingent and based upon the Bible. You can't do systematic theology without the Bible. All right, what do you think the next step is? What's the next step? What, what's the, the next thing you need to learn about in this process, building up your foundation? Who God is. Very good, Eric. Who God is. Right? Fundamental. Back to theology. Who is God? His attributes, his, his being, his essence, his mind, his nature, his will. That brings us to the next building block. What do you think the next building block is? Huh? Close. Huh? What God has done. Close. Go ahead, Anthony. Jesus. Very good. It's Jesus is next. Right? Which brings us to who man is, right? Because we're, and really within that, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, I ought not to skip that, pneumatology, and then man, and then you build up from there, from man. So you begin with God, Christ, Spirit, man, fall, right? You get into harmatology, you start dealing with sin, the fall of man, the reconciliation of man, reconciliation of man, justification, salvation. You build upon what God has done. And then at the tippy top, you get to things like ecclesiology and eschatology. But you can't get, isn't it funny when a Christian gets saved, what's the first book they read? Revelation. Revelation. <laughs> they skip all of this and go right to the top. You got to start at the beginning. Who had their hand up? Go ahead, Naveen. What's that? Yes. So when we, so like for instance, as you go, we'll go through this book, when the chapter when we're dealing with God, the Trinity is a major subject on theology proper, and of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all included in that study. But then we break off into the next. Now we focus specifically on the Son. 
And then the next chapter, we focus specifically on the Holy Spirit. And so you see there's a progression. This is why when it's systematic, it's organized. It's organized in a, in a very specific manner that you build upon each step of knowledge to have a greater understanding. So this way, when you get to the top of eschatology and ecclesiology, it, is, it depends on it has the foundation of all we learn and what the Bible teaches about all these other subjects. You're building up your faith. Now, if you notice, just to give you a little background of the history, I taught this when I did church history, but the first systematic theologies were in by medieval Catholics. Okay? And one man in particular, can anybody tell me who was the most famous uh, Roman Catholic theologian who first systematized theology? Augustine? No. Thomas Aquinas? Very good. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas. And his writings still exist and they're still read by even evangelicals because he did some of the greatest research into understanding who God is. Of course, they were deep in the darkness of Romanism, but they stood under, still understood the Bible and understood what Scripture taught about God to some extent. And so if you ever have a chance to read R.C. Sproul, how many of you like R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul? Very deeply devoted to the teachings of Aquinas. He did a lot of research on Aquinas. Um, there's a lot you could learn from that. Now we get to the Reformation. Who, who puts together the first systematic theology under the Reformation? Tom again. John Calvin. Very good. <laughs> All right. Now, now I'm not picking on you for another two questions. John Calvin. John Calvin writes his systematic theology. Can someone tell me what the name of it is? Pastor Paul, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He wrote while he was hiding out in a farm. He began writing while he was hiding out in a farm um, because of French persecution against evangelical Christians. The Roman church was basically arresting and, and you know, the Inquisition was in full speed ahead and, and he was living in a farm and uh, basically um, for about a year he began writing the Institutes and he get his first draft within a year. I don't know if you've ever seen the Institutes, but if you could put together the first draft in one year... You could see the brilliance of John Calvin, a very gifted man. And, um, of course, go other several revisions and additions and ultimately to what we have today. If you do not have a copy of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, I highly suggest you get one. You can get it for free online. You can buy a copy in modern English and just read through it as a devotional. There's actually a lot of Christians read through it as a devotional. Um, it's a great companion, and, um, and most of it, you know, is built on that same foundation, that same. Another aspect of systematic theology begins to develop after the post-Reformation period is the concept of confessions of faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession, and of course the 1689 Confession, which is based upon the Westminster Confession. If you look at these confessions... What they really are is basically condensed versions of systematic theology. They're a confession of beliefs. And the beliefs begin with the word of God, God, Christ, the spirit, salvation, eschatology, ecclesiology, and usually during this period of time, um, particularly in the Puritan British uh, Reformation, you see a lot of writing about the church and the state, as that was a significant event in that period of time. And so we see that systematic theology is part of the church's history. That the church has a history of systematizing and developing a theological understanding systematically. Okay? Another thing to remember is that systematic theology is timeless. It is timeless and thus is relevant to our 
modern era. There is never a time where systematic theology becomes irrelevant. It becomes irrelevant to the person who's the postmodernist. The person who's the postmodernist who doesn't believe in absolute truth and believes that truth is relevant in what you experience, then clearly systematic theology is not going to work. The goal of systematic theology is to ascertain truth. Truth, that which the Bible teaches and that we can understand and put our faith in. All right, so let's talk about locating systematic theology on the map. Theology is a broad term, as I said. It covers several distinct disciplines within theological studies. All these different areas of studies overlap and are part of a bigger comprehensive outlook. So I want to talk about several ways or approaches that theology is understood and where systematic theology falls in that. The first one that we want to talk about first one is exegetical theology. What is exegetical what is exegetical theology? Who would like to answer that? Anybody? What is exegetical theology? You uh, put the context into the text rather than inserting yourself into it. Perfect. Very good, Ben. Exegetical. This is where all the digging and all the homework comes in. If we're going to understand theology, what we have to do is study the text. What is the text within the context? What is the original languages? Exegetical theology is not read from an English Bible. It's read from a Greek New Testament, from a Hebrew Old Testament. It's breaking down the tenses, the verbs, the, the grammar, the phraseology, the idioms, the context in which something is written to discern the original intention of the manuscript. And so that is, a text cannot be taken out of context, because when a text is out of, out of context, it becomes the pretext for your proof text. Say that ten times. I can't even say it once. The exegetical theologian is the one who develops and studies all of the context in which the Bible was written in its original languages. The next one we have is biblical theology. What is biblical theology? Anybody want to tell me what that is? What does the Bible say? What? Yeah, that's that's definitely part of it. It's a little deeper than that. Anyone else? What the Bible teaches? Yes. All right. Go ahead, Anthony. Very good, Anthony. Very good. Biblical theology traces thematic arcs throughout Scripture. So, when we talk about biblical theology, we'll isolate a topic like, let's say, prayer. What does the Bible say about prayer in Genesis and the Torah? What does the Bible say about prayer in the historical books of the Old Covenant? What does the Bible say about prayer in the prophets? And how does that continue into the New Testament? What do the apostles say on prayer? And finally, as we get to Revelation, how is prayer discussed and thought about? So it, it traces a theme throughout all of Scripture. That's biblical theology. Now, when we talk about biblical theology... Although many, any theme can be traced, generally speaking, when we're talking about biblical theology, we're talking about governing schools of thought and how we interpret the Bible. There are two, or I should say three, primary views.
These three main views really fall under the category of biblical theology, and it's how people interpret the Bible. Covenant theology. Covenant theology is rooted in Presbyterianism. Its origins. Calvin and most of the reformers were covenant theologians. What does covenant theology mean? Well, essentially, covenant theologians see there are only two covenants that God ever made with mankind. The covenant of works, which we talked about in our confession this morning, which God made with Adam in the garden, right? And, and Adam fell, so therefore all men are under the covenant of works, and all men have failed the covenant of works, therefore all men are under judgment. And then there's the covenant of grace. The covenant theologian sees that immediately after the fall, what happened? I referred to the Lord's Supper. God killed two animals and used their skins to cover and atone for the sins of Adam and Eve. And therefore, what we see there is an act of grace. God said, surely in the day you eat of the fruit, you shall die. But Adam and Eve did not die. They died spiritually. But they were gone for the 900 years. That's grace. The fact that they were given garments to wear was to cover their shame and sin was grace. And so therefore, that begins the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace then continues through the Bible, and all the other covenants are simply different manifestations of the covenant of grace. And so what we see in covenant theology is continuity, continuity. Just one continuous covenant that, as Revelation progresses, is revealed in different ways. Go ahead. correlation of these other disciplines. Yeah. I gave you the simplified answer. I can close the book and go home now already. But I give part of my lesson here is to give you a, a broader view of how this fits in with other disciplines of theology. Yeah, systematic theology is a collection, an organized collection of Bible verses and the doctrines that those Bible verses teach. Right? But we're, we're looking at this from within the bigger of theological studies. Because this stuff is important too. Even as a layperson, you should know this. Because if you don't understand this kind of stuff, systematic theology, this will inform systematic theology. If you're a covenant theologian, then your systematic theology is going to look a lot different from dispensational theologian. Right? John McBarger just put out a, a, a systematic theology. He's a dispensationalist progressive dispensationalist, right? If you look at one by, a, a, you know, let's say John Frame, who's a, who's a covenant theologian, his is going to look a lot different than John MacArthur's. So what you believe here definitely informs how you interpret and understand systematic theology. It is interrelated. That brings me to my second point, dispensationalism. Dispensationalism let me give an example of John MacArthur, who I would consider progressive dispensationalist, and these terms become very nuanced at a certain point. But basically he believes, yes, there was, a, there was a road for Israel 
There's a road for the church. There are two roads that go through the Bible. The road for the Gentiles and the road for the Jews. Really, when you look at covenant theology and dispensational theology, they're two opposites. One sees continuity, progressive revelation. It, it's, it's, it's just God's plan unfolding through the scriptures, one continuous plan. The dispensationalist says that there are two plans. There's a plan for the Israel and a plan for the church. There's the heavenly people, there's the earthly people. And so therefore, how one sees Israel determines whether they're a covenant theologian or a dispensational theologian. There is a middle position. The middle position here, New Covenant Theology or Progressive Covenantalism. There's actually some new books written on progressive covenantalism, which are very good. says, yes, there was... Think of it, think of it this way. Covenant sees one train track. Dispensational sees two train tracks that are parallel. But in the New Covenant Theology, Progressive Covenantalism... You have one train track, and then you get off, and you get on the other train track, which is the new covenant. So, there's continuity, but there's discontinuity. I tend to fall into this category, progressive covenantalism. Progressive covenantalism. It's a more nuanced view of new covenant theology. Now, new covenant theology is rather new. In the last 20 years... Um, it was developed um, by, by theologians like Don Carson and Fred Zaspel. Um, and, you know, if you've ever heard Don Carson or Fred Zaspel speak, they're brilliant theologians. Um, a lot of Southern Baptist theologians fall into this category. But this will inform how you understand the rest of your systematics. So Wayne Grudem happens to be a middle-of-the-road guy. Wayne Grudem is also good because, although he's a New Covenant guy, He'll give you what the covenantal and dispensational views are on certain doctrines. That's why I chose this book. I chose this book because it'll give you a, a, a fair, I think Wayne Grudem gives a fair analysis of the different views, what his, what his view is, it presents the facts of what the scripture teaches. You want to say something? Just put a bit in an auction. Um, so that's, that's biblical theology. Now, again, these views take into account the relationship with Israel and the church, and because of that, it forms a hermeneutic. What is a hermeneutic? Anybody? Dan? How do you interpret scripture? If you're a covenant theologian, you ever wonder why Presbyterians baptize babies? Because when you're locked into that worldview... There's so much continuity that we have to find how are we going to fit circumcision into the new covenant. I got it. Baptism is circumcision. Now, I'm not saying they just came up with it that easily, but this is where they come to the conclusion. I think it's a stretch. I think it's a huge stretch to come to that conclusion, to say that, that circumcision in the old covenant leads to baptism in the new covenant. I think it's new. It's called the new covenant because it's new and it's distinct. It's based on faith, not based on, on who your bloodline is and being ethnically related to Israel. Whoever comes to faith in Christ is baptized. Male, female, doesn't matter where you come from. And so that's going to inform your hermeneutic. That Your hermeneutic will determine your theology. The dispensationalist has a big emphasis on Israel. And so because the dispensationalist believes that, that God still is working with Israel, still has a plan for Israel... Their end goal is this restored state of Israel. The, uh, their, and, and basically, a dispensational interprets scripture through the lens of the premillennial view. That Christ is coming to the earth. He's going to set up a thousand-year reign in Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. The priests are going to start sacrificing again. And we're, and we're going to just restore all the Old Testament promises of physical Israel and a, and a physical temple are going to come to pass. And so they start to read through the Bible pointing to that. The reason why I fall into this category is because the Bible isn't neatly compacted into these systems. 
And so therefore, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. There's differences of opinion among very godly men who love God and believe the truth. Do I think John Frame is a Christian? Yes. Do I think John MacArthur is a Christian? Yes. And they couldn't disagree more on those topics. So it's, it stands to... Re- and this is where we see the fallibility of man. Scripture is infallible, but man is fallible. We're scratching the surface. When we talk about the study of God and reading the Bible, most of it's plain and you know, we're going to hear a lesson on the clarity of Scripture. But there are some parts of Scripture that we're going to wrestle through until we get to heaven. Go ahead, Paul. There's a lot more to cover, so time is getting away from me. Historical theology is another discipline within the theological studies framework. And of course, this informs our systematic theology as well. And Greg Allison writes a companion book to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology called Historical Theology. And I advise the men who are teaching to get a copy of both, because what historical theology says, all right, what do you think historical theology does? If biblical theology traces a theme throughout the Bible, what does historical theology do? Through history, exactly. So let's say, for instance, the Lord's Supper. Well, what did the what did the believers, what did the church believe in the patristic period? And what did they believe during the Augustinian period? And what did they believe in the medieval period? And what happened in the Reformation? And what happened during the Wesleyan movement? And what happened in the Pentecostal movement? Then what happened in the 20th and 21st century? In other words, you trace a, a doctrine, like let's say the Lord's Supper, and see how it, how it moved, how it stayed the same, and how it changed through history. What are the constants that the church always believed, and how was it changed? What are the differences? Did those same differences we have now exist in 300 AD as they exist today? Again, our systematic theology is informed by historical theology. And then finally, there's pastoral theology. What do you think pastoral theology means? Absolutely. Very good, Tom. Practical. How does all of this apply to my life? There's a lot of head knowledge here, right? What's the danger with head knowledge? What's that? Lacks heart? Yeah. Head knowledge puffs up, right? But love edifies. So if you build up a lot of head knowledge, all you become is what? A smart sinner. Yeah, or not obedient. So when we talk about, you know, pastoral theology, it's taking these doctrines and then saying, well, how does this apply to my life? What does it mean? That's what Wayne Grudem does that most theologians don't do. So if you read his systematic theology, his Bible doctrine, you're going to see at the end of every chapter there are application questions. There's a devotional. There's a song, a, a scripture to read, to memorize, and a hymn to sing, to praise God. No other systematic theologian does that. That's why I think that Wayne Grudem's work is probably the best work available for the lay Christian. 
and even for, for a pastor. It's a rich book. I bought it when it first came out. I've been deeply blessed by it, and I have other systematic theologies that I use, and I, I love them too. But for, for, for a devotional purpose, Grudem's is tops. Now, some I haven't read. I haven't read MacArthur's yet, but I've, I've breezed through it. Um, but pastoral theology has a big part of this too. And then ultimately we have systematic. Systematic collects all thoughts on the subject, defines it, and tells us what scripture says on any particular subject. And it's systematized and organized. All right, any questions? Any questions? All right. I'm sorry if I'm getting a little too deep, but I want to I give you guys a framework to work with and understand as we're going through this, as we study theology, we study God, it's not just let's read alone systematic theology. Systematic theology must be informed and within the disciplines of other studies of theology. I didn't even scratch the surface of dealing with New Testament theology or Old Testament theology. There's, there's, there's other aspects of theological studies we can get into. Now the question is the method of studying systematic theology. Well, let me talk about let me talk about four approaches, four approaches. The first is rationalism or the philosophical approach. So we're talking about methods of studying theology now. We'll talk about the rational approach. What is the rational approach to studying theology? Somebody, Frank? Okay, you, yeah, I think you're, you're on some. Anyone else want to elaborate on that? When you're talking about someone who's rational, what are they using as a means of logic, reason, right? But does reason always bring us to the conclusion of truth? No, you can't get to truth without reason. Let's make that clear. Truth is always reasonable. But reason alone cannot get you to truth. This is what took place in the uh, 1600s and 1700s, the Enlightenment era, right? What was taking place in the Enlightenment era? The, the, the philosophers of that time period and John Locke and a lot of the people who helped frame uh, uh, American society were rationalists. So they would read through the Bible and see something like the miracles of Jesus, the, the, the birth narrative, the nativity narrative. What does ration, rationalism tell you? Well, that can't be. Every human being is born of a mother and father, so if it's not rational, if it's not reasonable, we'll exclude it. Did you ever hear of the Jeffersonian Bible? Thomas Jefferson had his own Bible and he eliminated everything in there that was supernatural and miraculous, and only that which was rational and reasonable. So do we, do we follow rationalism as the guide and method of interpreting systematic theology? No. Then we have the very opposite of that. The very opposite of that is... Mysticism. What is the mystical approach to study in theology? Okay, that's close. Any, ben? Bible roulette. Bible roulette. Okay. <laughs> Let me see what is God saying today. Um, okay, anyone else? Frank? The mystic, the mystic interprets theology based on experience. You're, you're all right on that same track. The Quaker is a mystic. The Quaker comes to church on Sunday or at the meeting hall, and there's no systematic way or organized approach to worship. What do you feel today? Do we have a preacher? I don't know. Where's the spirit leading? Who's going to preach today? 
That's the other extreme of mysticism, right? Everybody's a, everybody has the spirit of God, so anyone can preach here today. I don't have to preach. Come on, who's going to preach? Imagine if I preached in the church on Sunday, and I said, okay, guys, who's preaching today? <laughs> That's what Quakers do. There's actually, Quakers can show up to a Quaker meeting and sit there for an hour and not say anything. Wait for the experience. It's the hyper-extreme of Pentecostalism. And what is Pentecostalism and Quakerism? What does it all have in common? It, it has in common that it's built on emotions. It's built on experience. It's what you feel. It's what the tingling feeling in your spine. It's experiential. You laugh, but there are sincere people who believe this. It's, and, and it's, you know, it's a sad thing. What, what do you think the problem is with this? What is the problem? It's fallible. It's subjective. What you experience and what I experience could be two different things. How can we ascertain truth when we're basing our understanding on subjective experiences of the mystical kind? I could be right one day, you could be right. But we both can't be right together. And so we see that logic has to prevail as well. There's almost a balance between the two that you need. The third method of interpretation is Romanism, right? Romanism is the approach. When I say Romanism, but it really comes down to traditionalism, because you could be an Eastern Orthodox person and have the same problems that theology is interpreted through the rubric of your oral tradition. So the Roman Catholic Church has their canons and catechisms in which they interpret scripture. The Eastern Orthodox Church does as well. And so this is when you add the traditions of men to interpret the word of God. Jesus had his own issue with that with the Pharisees. Would he tell them in Matthew 15? You make void the word of God by the traditions of men. By teaching your traditions, you nullify the teaching of scripture. And so Romanism clearly using our approach and finally, there is the inductive method. The inductive method. Frank? Yeah. Well, yeah, that is, that is exactly what Romanism believes. Romanism believes that they are the true church, that every other church is outside of Christ and heretical, although they've modified those views to fit in with the modern times. The hardcore Catholic still ultimately believes that salvation cannot be obtained anywhere except through the Roman Catholic Church. Same thing with the Church of Christ, or um, you know, there's other churches that have that OTC approach. But what, 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 I, what we're looking at is interpretation, a method of interpretation of systematic theology because Catholicism sees the traditions of the church as equal in authoritative weight to the scripture, systematic theology is interpreted through those traditions. Who had their hand up? There was someone with their hand up. Finally, the inductive method. The inductive method. And the inductive method was um, brought to us by Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge was the one to understand or explain to us what the inductive method is. He called it the true method. It assumes that the Bible contains all the facts and truths, which is where we get pure theology. It's a quote from Charles Hodge. So in other words, when we're studying systematic theology, it's a science. And like science, we use the scientific method. So when we're studying using the scientific method, we're Reminded that imperial science is objective and dominates over our conclusions. So what do we know about the Bible? The Bible is observable, it's studyable, and we can draw conclusions from it. And so therefore, studying the Bible is scientific. First, observation in the theological method, or the inductive method, right? You don't need to go far to observe all the facts are here. 
It's data mining. Now we have Lagos, right? Think of the hard work the men like Calvin had to do and sit there and read a physical copy of the Bible. You just type a word in Lagos if you have the platinum package and you can get everything you want on there, right? But we can data mine through Scripture. We look about details about subjective, the subject matter we're investigating and we collect that data and that data is objective in Scripture. And then what we do is we construct a theory on the collection of data using the inductive method, using exegesis to both make deductions and abductions. The deduction is taking the facts of induction that we just learned and putting them together to derive conclusions. Deductions answer question. What is logically necessitated in light of these observations? And then abduction answers the question, how can this be? going back to see the data if the theory works. And so we come up with a criteria for assessing theological formulations. What do we consider when looking at a doctrinal proposal? Does it accurately reflect what the Bible teaches? There's quantitative criterion. Is all data accounted for? So if we're looking at a specific doctrine, have we considered every scripture focused on this doctrine? Is there anything we left out Are all relevant passages included? Have I ignored certain Bible teachings that might help and inform this particular text? For example, we may preach on eternal security and formulate a doctrine on eternal security, but you can't do that without reading Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. You can't leave that out. As difficult as those texts are, you have to bring that into your formulation of coming up with your doctrine. Consistent, then there's the, the qualitative criterion. Did we interpret those scriptures correctly? Have we interpreted the text in the way the author intended? And that's where all those other disciplines come in. Exegetical, historical. You're comparing. I'm not alone here. I'm not living on an island. There's other Christians in history. What have other Christians thought on this subject matter? Is my understanding accurate? Or is this something of a private interpretation? Am I dreaming this up? This is how cults start. Cults start when Christians start to, I should say, not when people, not Christians, but people start to develop their own ideas. Remember I talked about the allegorical method over there? That's what's so horrible about the allegorical method. It's incredibly subjective. Well, the 256 is an allusion to the church, and you're in the boat, and if you're not in the boat, you're in the sea, and if you're in the sea, you're outside of God's. No! You came up with that idea. God didn't come up with that. That's why we have to have a qualitative criterion in how we interpret Scripture. The historical grammatical method is the only method of interpretation for the Bible. And finally, there's the consistency criterion and the coherence criterion. Is my doctrinal proposal logically and internally consistent is it cohesive? Does it communicate wholeness? And is it, is it fit in with the rest of the teachings of Scripture, right? You cannot come into a doctrinal conclusion that is not consistent with or coherent with the rest of the teachings of Scripture. So, for example, the heretical teaching that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and had a family. That's written in extra-biblical books. is inconsistent with what the rest of Scripture teaches about Christ. To embrace such a theory would just wreak havoc on the rest of our theological presuppositions. You have to deny all the other teachings about Christ. His deity, his, uh, the hypostatic union. You can't just come up with doctrinal conclusions that are not coherent and consistent with the rest of the teachings of systematic theology and the rest of Scripture. So there is how we come to the study of systematic theology. Let me conclude in three ways, two two important things. Why should we study systematic theology? This is after absorbing all this. What's the purpose? Are we just gonna is this just seminary students do this? No. Every Christian should study systematic theology. Every Christian should study 
Number one, because what you believe informs, molds, and shapes your relationship with God. You have wrong beliefs about God and wrong beliefs about what the Bible is teaching, you're not going to have a right relationship with God. If you have a relationship with another human being and you have wrong beliefs about that person, your relationship's not, it's going to be problematic. Because we relate to God, because he saved us to have an eternal relationship with him, it's incumbent on us to know as much about him as possible. To know his mind, his heart, his nature, his will. Knowledge is the, is the fertile ground in which love develops. Anybody could say they love God. But do you love the God of the Bible? Secondly, theology is important because it's directly bound to the Great Commission. I started off with Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Why? Because Jesus told us specifically to teach, to teach, to teach. And as we saw through all those scriptures I read, doctrine and teaching are essential to the foundation and building of the church of God. When a church forgets doctrine and throws doctrine out the window, you're left with nothing but emotions and feelings and opinions. The church must continue in its study of doctrine. After we finish this course, I might do it again in a few years. There's never a reason to stop. What does it mean to me? And that's why I'm doing this class. Yes. Because we need to know. Yes. Like I said, every Christian should be a theologian. And knowledge, um, in the sense, I mean, the whole, you know, we're all knowledge. We ought to know. Paul says, do you not know this? Mm-hmm. Because it is this God says, is it It'll give us a foundation against competing worldviews and doctrines in the world. You see, either you're going to believe the doctrines of God or the doctrines of men. There's doctrines all around us. There's a lot of doctrines out there. There's worldviews. So in the, big, in, the, in the world stage, we're competing with the worldviews of secular humanism. And then secular humanism breaks down into several different disciplines. Postmodernism, truth is relative, and you know, critical theory, and all the and Marxism, and all these different views that, that basically govern the unbelieving world and how they think, you know, that, that's understanding our theology is going to root us and ground us in truth so that we won't be easily swayed by every wind of doctrine. 
very easy to get sucked away into the world's views when you're not grounded in theology. Secondly, we need to learn, and this is all under that same thing, but also we need to be grounded against false religions. Why is Christianity true? Why is Islam false? If you were to meet a Muslim and share the gospel with them and they started reciting their beliefs to you, would you be able to, would you be able to, you know, argue with them and show them where they're wrong and where the Bible's right? Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to reason through with them? Some of us would sit there, huh? You know, we'd be confounded. They'd run circles around us. You have to be ready to give an answer for the faith that you have, right? Hinduism, Buddhism, all the predominant, you know, religions today, you know, we're seeing a, a, a rise of neo-paganism. Neo-paganism is on the rise, guys. Did you know that? And then, of course, false Christian doctrines. Sometimes the greatest enemies are right within. We all know who the enemies are out there, but it's within the church. There's always going to be, as you, as long as I've been a Christian over 20 years now, 1995, almost 30 years I've been a Christian, there's always some kind of movement, some kind of trend, some kind of new idea that's going to come out. Theology helps keep you grounded and safeguards you against those. Because I've seen people get swept right out of the church. They're not theologically grounded. Some new idea, some new trend. Oh, that's cool, man. I'm going with it. Gone. And just as quick as those people are gone, so are those trends. Rob Bell. Remember Rob Bell? He's gone. And so, in the end of the day, it's being grounded in the truth of God's word. This is nothing more systematic theology than knowing our Bibles, what it teaches us about God, and how we could live a Christian life. Go ahead, Paul. I think you bring up a very good point. And that answers, what you're giving us the answer to is the question, how do we study systematic theology? And you cannot study this without the aid of the Spirit. If you could study all of this and learn it, but to really understand and apply it, we need the Spirit's aid. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 19, 18? 18. Yeah. Okay. I think that wasn't. <laughs> no. No. Open. I'll give you the first word. Open. No. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That's not what Yeah, it's here. 119, 18. Oh. It's all right, brother. It's all right. Listen. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Only God can do that. I pray that before every sermon. Because I know without the aid of the Spirit, it's impossible. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Anthony, could you close us in prayer, brother?
teaching to us in a systematic way so that we, the lay people, might understand yes. how gracious and how good you are. Oh, that our eyes would be opened to behold these wondrous things, these marvelous and most glorious things. Give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Let the eyes of our understanding be enlightened so that we may know what is the hope of your calling. Fill us to the brain with the knowledge of your will so that we may understand those things that are freely given to us. For your glorious name's sake, we thank you for our pastor and as our traveling mercies upon him and everybody else in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, bless you all, and next week, Eric's bringing us the next lesson. Right, Brother E? All right, have a good day.